Strange Stories UK here again, calling this one A Knifing in Eastbourne, and this is Season 6, Episode 14. Well, I would be surprised if anyone has heard of this case before. Another domestic dispute caused in part by war. Very few records seem to exist of this case. There are a couple of newspaper reports from the Sussex Daily News and the Eastbourne Gazette from 1949. These were viewed at the Keep in the Brighton Sussex Record Office. And there was a thin police file of just 16 pages. Much of, uh, much of it was repeated information in the National Archives. What little information there is available concentrates on the murderer and as usual, the very little is known about the victim. So let's set the scene. Eastbourne, 1949. The UK was a dull place to live after World War II. Rationing was severe. It wasn't just food, but cold, clothes, soap, tea, virtually everything. The observation being it could be worse if the war had been lost. Rationing ended completely in 1954, nine years after the war. Meat was the last item to be derationed. Beer wasn't rationed, although due to poor supplies, pubs were often shut several days a week after they'd run dry. On the plus side, cigarettes were inexpensive, a penny each, and the standard topic of conversation was coupons, food and clothes. In the towns, people could go to the local public baths once a week to have a hot bath for sixpence. There was a sense of social malaise. Polls indicated that over 60% of people surveyed felt they were not getting enough food to be in good health. It seemed only that the black market was booming. Eastbourne in 1949 had it better than a lot of other towns in the country. It was a popular destination for day trippers and holiday makers. On hot sunny days the town would see an influx of thousands travelling down from London to visit the beaches, the bars and the restaurants. William John Davies and Lucy Wilson were two people that worked in the town. They both worked in restaurants. William John Davis had been associating with a married woman, Mrs Lucy Wilson, from around 1944. They had first met in 1941. Lucy's husband, Mr Wilson, had been serving with the armed forces and when he finally returned home for good in 1947, he found out about his wife's relationship with Davis, Davies and had nothing more to do with her. From this time, Davies, aged 30, and Lucy Wilson, aged 37, lived together as man and wife at 34 Terminus Place, Eastbourne. This is now a Canito's Piri Piri, a popular takeaway fast food shop. Lucy, or the Wilson's three children, went to go and live with her father, Mr Wilson. In late 1948, Lucy began to accuse Davis of associating with other women, in particular one woman who he worked with. Although he denied this, the relationship became strained. Davis said that Lucy had began to taunt him, that he was unable to sexually satisfy her anymore. Also, Lucy said she was going to beat up the woman that Davis knew, and this caused a breakup. Davis warned her not to do so and forced her to leave the house although he seemed to have regretted this soon after. 
The 5th of March, 1949, Lucy went out with another man. Davis said he was distraught as he still loved her and he went to Campbell's restaurant on Terminus Road, Eastbourne, where Lucy worked as a counterhand to plead with her to come back to him. Terminus Road was in effect the main high street in Eastbourne. Lucy refused. The next day, Davis saw Lucy being met after work by the other man. On the 8th of March, Davis again tried to make it up with Lucy, going to her place of work. He asked Lucy if she still believed that he was seeing another woman. She replied, yes, and you can get out of this place. Davis claimed he did not remember what he did next, but he said he must have lost his temper and struck out with a knife. He had brought a knife with him from his place of work, a table knife. The first time he realised it caused injury to Mrs Wilson was when he saw her lying on the floor with a knife sticking out of her eye. Mrs Jean Copeland, who worked as a cook at Campbell's restaurant, said that she saw Davis follow Mrs Wilson upstairs and a moment later heard a scream. At the top of the stairs she saw Mrs Wilson and Davis struggling. Mrs Wilson had a hand to her bleeding face and a terrible injury to her eye. Davis said, What have I done to you, Luce? As a pathologist later said, the knife by an unhappy chance found a particular spot that was to prove fatal. Davis said he had no intention of causing the wound. He had only taken the knife with him to threaten Lucy with, if she refused to go back with him. Although, as was commented at the time, it's difficult to comprehend how anyone would have thought that taking a knife would have been a good decision. Davis stayed with Lucy until the police came to arrest him and the ambulance came to take her away. Lucy Wilson died in hospital some days later from the injuries. A wound had penetrated her left eye some two inches into the brain. A knife engraved Grand Hotel, where Davis had been employed, was found at the top of the stairs. Grand Hotel, Eastbourne. It's an upmarket hotel, still going strong today. Davis had cut his finger on his right hand while stabbing and fighting with Lucy. It also injured his wrist. He claimed to have chest pains which he developed during his struggle with Lucy. The medical officer at the prison found no evidence of disease or nervous problems. The medical officer compiled a further report on Davis after a number of interviews and requested information after requesting information on him. The medical officer had a new machine, an electroencephalograph, to allow a special examination to measure brain activity or to give information about mental processing of patients, indicating any abnormality such as epilepsy or dementia. It was reported that Davis's father was alive and in good health, but his mother died when he was aged nine years. It seemed that she committed suicide by gas poisoning, although there were suspicions it was a murder staged to look like suicide, although no charge had ever been made. Davis's sister, called Mrs O'Connor, was a few years older than him and said that Davis was a normal child in most respects, but he was inclined to be mischievous at school. She gave a famous family example when Bill Davis was young. He was told that there were chickens and eggs, and he broke them searching for chickens. After school, Davis worked in the coal pits for about four years, and in 1936 was sent by the Ministry of Labour to a training centre in Wales. These were in effect labour camps for the unemployed during the Great Depression. The camps were run 
in the main by ex-service personnel, and the regimes were both hard and draconian. As a result, many men did not stay the course. A period of 16 weeks where they worked 12-hour shifts, usually for six days a week. They slept in Nissen huts and received part of their unemployment benefit as pay. The rest of their pay, somewhere in the region of nine old shillings, about 45 pence today, was sent to their families. The training camps were supposed to train him to be a bricklayer. He was there for five months, but according to Davis, he never got any training in bricklaying. All he did was labouring work. It was true that those in the labour camps could leave at any time, but during the Great Depression there was not much of an alternative other than joining the army, which is what Davis did. Davis joined the army in 1936 until he was demobbed in 1946. He was described as a sober, hard-working and trustworthy man, and his military conduct record was assessed as good. But there did seem to be a big blip in Malta when he was sentenced to 16 months hard labour for theft. Davis only served five months of his sentence when war broke out. Then he was sent to Palestine, then he was sent to Malta, and stayed in Malta until it was relieved in November 1942. Then he went to Egypt for a few months, then the Aegean Sea, then Egypt again, then back to England. He was never wounded and never had any specialised job in the army. He was just a private soldier told to do any job that needed doing. Davis's time serving in Malta was at a time when Malta was being heavily attacked and being described as an unsinkable aircraft character, uh, carrier for the Allied forces while the Axis forces were trying to bomb it into submission over a period of two years. Uh, Davis was admitted to hospital during this time, suffering from anxiety neurosis. He later said that the bombing was so heavy that he completely lost his nerve. It caused him to be troubled by bedwetting, which continued to trouble him if he drank beer late into the night. On being demobilised, David found it difficult. Uh, Davis found it difficult to settle into civilian life again. This is when he took up with Lucy Wilson. His employment was chiefly in hotel work, as a still room hand, a hotel porter, a waiter, and similar jobs. In all the jobs he held, apparently he gave satisfaction to his employers. It was in 1944, while still serving in the army, he started seeing Mrs. Dave, Mrs. Wilson on a regular basis, uh, soon moving in with her. Mr. Wilson was serving abroad and Davis associated with Lucy every time he was on leave and when he was demobilised he commenced to live with her. When Mrs Wilson's husband came home in 1946 he found out about their association and decided to have nothing more to do with his wife Lucy and left her taking with him the three children of the marriage. Davis was not contemplating marriage to Mrs. Wilson as she was married and divorce was very difficult and expensive in the 1940s. The grounds for divorce were just adultery, drunkenness, insanity and desertion 
and only the wealthy could afford the cost of a divorce. Davis said they'd fallen in love with Lucy and would always remain faithful to her. However, there were reported assaults on Lucy Wilson in 1947 and 1948, which were reported to the police. Davis said that the reason for these was that she was trying to induce him to steal money, and when he refused to do so, she taunted him by saying he wasn't a man, and she would get another man to steal for her. On the first occasion in 1947, he said that Mrs. Wilson tried to attack him with a cup, and when he struck her, he struck her back in self-defence. On the second occasion, he admits that he lost his temper under her taunts of being unwilling to steal for her, and he struck her. Despite these quarrels and violence, the association was maintained until about five weeks before the murder. Although we do not have anybody to speak on her behalf to defend her, Lucy Wilson does seem to have been a difficult person. It was in 1948 when Davis said that Lucy began to suspect him of having an affair with another woman who was employed at the hotel where he was working. This was despite his protestations that he was faithful to her, but she went on making accusations of his infidelity to her and she would not accept his denials. Lucy then said that sexually, Davis was finished. He could no longer satisfy her and she was therefore going to get other men to satisfy her. On the day before the murder, Lucy went out with another man, telling Davis that she would get satisfaction from him. On the following day, Davis went to see Lucy at the cafe where she was working in the morning, and he pled with her to come back to him. She refused, repeating her statements that he was sexually incompetent. Davis said that then he lost his temper, and he struck her with a knife. The knife was a table knife that he had bought with him from the place where he was working, the Grand Hotel. He said he was sorry immediately after he saw what he had done. He admitted that he must have had some intention of frightening her because he had bought a table knife with him. The medical officer thought Davis was being truthful, but it was only one side of the story. We had no one to give Lucy's side of the quarrel. As regards to Bill Davis's sex life, which the authorities always seemed obsessed about, they thought it was normal, or the medical officer thought it was normal. Davis masturbated after the onset of puberty, aged about 14. There was only a little masturbation while he was in the army. He had dreams and fantasies about women. And with the exception that while serving in the army, he had fairly frequent sexual intercourse, always with prostitutes. He said he was never in love with anyone of the opposite sex until he met Mrs. Wilson. Davis said that he caught gonorrhea from Lucy in 1944, but they both underwent treatment and were cured. Since leaving the army, it would appear that the return to civilian life unsettled Davis. But as it was pointed out, these conditions do not appear to have been different to many thousands of others who managed successfully to readjust themselves to the conditions of civilian life after war. It would appear that his association with Lucy Wilson was on his part founded to a large extent on love and affection. Davis said that after leaving the army, 
He found life was difficult until he met Lucy and formed quickly an intimate association with her. And that's when he went to live in Eastbourne with her. He got work in a hotel as a waiter, a kitchen porter, and he had been there all the time except for a short period when he served as a labourer in a gas works. On Davis's admission to prison on the 25th of March 1949, that was at Wormham Scrubs, South London, this was after spending a couple of weeks at Lewis in Sussex. He was showing signs of mild depression, which slowly lifted as he accepted his position and began to mix with the other prisoners. While in the ward, at all times he behaved rationally and normally, and his initial solitariness quickly passed away. Latterly, the officers in charge had always reported that his behaviour in the ward had been very good and that he has, by his industry and cooperation, been an example to other inmates in the ward. It was mentioned that Davis developed a stammer if he talked about Lucy and the stabbing. This was put down to the stress and worry he felt about what had happened. It seemed that the fellow inmates accepted that he had not intended to kill his common-law wife Lucy. He had lashed out in the heat of the moment. Davis told the medical officers during interviews that during the early part of his stay at the scrubs, Wormham Scrubs, his sleep was broken by dreams concerning the victim. But at later interviews, he said he slept much better, more soundly, and was not troubled with dreams. Nevertheless, Davis still showed signs of grief and regret as a result of his actions. At no time he shown any indications of insanity, and according to the mental tests, he was of normal intelligence, and he was considered fit to go on trial. The trial did not go well for Davis. The Sussex Daily News reported on Friday the 15th of July 1949 that when the sentence was read out and the judge, Mr Justice Christmas Humphreys, who did not have the reputation of being lenient, put on a black cap as he pronounced the sentence of death at Lewis, Lewis Assizes, a screaming woman was reported, who I would imagine would have been Davis's sister, Mrs O'Connor. The headlines in that day's local newspapers was that an Eastbourne man was to hang for murder. It was only days after Mr Justice Christmas Humphreys had sentenced John Haig to death. He was being held in the same prison as Davis. Many people thought that the crime committed by Davis was not on the same level as those of the evil crimes of George Haig, who dissolved his friends in acid for profit, although they were both sentenced to the same fate. Davis, when hearing the death sentence, was apparently unmoved and turned and went to the cells below quite calmly. Davis wrote the following letter to a Mrs Kirby from his condemned cell. I do not know who Mrs Kirby was, as she was not mentioned in police records. Anyhow, Mrs M Kirby lived at 21 Harding Avenue, Eastbourne in Sussex, and the letter read as follows. Dear Miss Kirby, or Mrs Kirby, I'm writing this letter to you. I know after five months, I don't know what to say, as you must think I'm cheeky. But now the trial is over, and everything else, I've only 12 days left in the world. I'm not asking you for mercy or forgiveness, because I don't deserve it. But whatever you think of me, I want you to know, I love Lucy with all my heart. 
as you know, I did. Well, that's all I have to say. Maybe we'll be happier in our new life. Bill. The defence put in an appeal for Bill Davis's life, but the reply from the Home Office was cold and stark. It read as follows. Home Office, Whitehall, 12th of August 1949. Regarding your reference. Sir, I am directed by the Secretary of State to inform you that having had under his consideration the case of William John Davis, now lying under the sentence of death in Wandsworth Prison, he has failed to discover any sufficient grounds to justify him in advising His Majesty to interfere with a due course of law. I am your obedient servant, blah, blah, blah. Well, the Secretary of State was the Labour Minister and Home Secretary Tutor Ed, or Tutor Ed. To be fair, he was against the death penalty, and he had agreed up to 1948 to commute every death sentence that was appealed to life imprisonment until he was told to toughen up on death sentences, and he had allowed hang- to allow hangings to continue. So it was bad timing for Davis. A year previously, he would have probably served 12 years and then been released. The Eastbourne Gazette reported on the 17th of August 1949 that 13 people waited outside Wandsworth Prison when an execution notice was pinned to the prison doors at 9am. 12 men, a boy and a dog. It was noted that there were no women in contrast to the execution six days earlier when John Haig, the acid murderer, was hung. Well, that's it. Another short, uh, short podcast I will take a break later in the year, but we'll continue to put out some shorter, lesser-known stories during the summer. I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music, and until next time, I'll say thank you for listening. (laughs) 